Welcome to What's Left, a weekly political discussion challenging the mainstream left. My name is Andy Lipson, and today we are joined by socialist and community organizer Kenny Zapeta and writer and teacher Jessica. And uh, you'll notice someone's missing. Uh, that's Eduardo, um, as he mentioned, I think at the last end of our last episode, he is on his way yeah, to Colombia. Um, and he may hopefully be returning to What's Left next week we might be able to get an interview. He hopes to get an interview of people who are doing stuff in Colombia in resistance to the um, vaccination, mass vaccination and some of the lockdown uh, things that are going on on there, but we'll see. Um, so today we're actually gonna be revisiting Ukraine, Russia, United States, and the idea of global war, World War III. Um, and I, Jessica and I, I think you and I talked last, was it yesterday or Tuesday? I might have been both. <laughs> Maybe have been both, yeah. Um, we weren't really sure what to, what to discuss. We were thinking about maybe the um, outreach we've been doing around uh, the vaccines and mandates, stuff like that. And then this article I saw, and I'm, I'm gonna, it was um, an article that came out in Lou Rockwell, um, Scott Ritter's switcheroo, switcheroo, why I radically changed my overall assessment. Um, basically, he's a, he's a person who has been critical of the U.S. invasion or the U.S. proxy war in Ukraine and, not, and identifying it not as something that is to defend Ukraine, but is, in, but is basically an aggressive action to draw Russia into a war and then drain, as he says, fight. Russia to the last Ukrainian um, with the aim of ge larger geopolitical interests of smashing Russia. And I suspect he would say the same thing that well, I would say, which is for the U.S. to be able to rule the globe. Um, and once Russia goes down, China would be next. Um, and his assessment of the, what the, of the war had been one that was different from the, from the mainstream. He had, he had often said that, uh, no, Russia is not losing. Russia is not trying to take Kiev. Russia is actually just pinning some forces down in Kiev with the idea of doing two things, demilitarizing Ukraine and denazifying, um, taking out the Azov battalions and taking out the ability of Ukraine to operate as a front for the U.S. and NATO powers who had been, who had been um, supplying it in 2014. And his claim was that actually, even though they're taking some time, um, is that that was slowly happening. Um, and I think the big issue was he, fe he felt that the U.S., that Ukraine would not be able to resupply, would not be able to remilitarize. Um, and I think well, one of the things I read here is um, in this article, and in the, the person who wrote the article is almost mad at Scott Ritter for saying he's rethinking it. I'm actually glad he's rethinking it because it's caused me to think more deeply about what I think is going on there. Um, even though the implications of his rethinking, I think are very scary. Um, but what he's basically saying is that that $40 billion that has recently been voted by the United States, um, that was not for nothing. That wasn't, that's not some Hail Mary uh, $40 billion to hopefully hold, let Ukraine hold on as it, in, as Scott Ritter had thought, basically in the next month, this would be a wrap up operation. And he's now looking at this situation and seeing that while the, Russia has ultimately been successful more slowly than maybe people expected in the east of Ukraine. Um, 
there is there is a quick remilitarizing taking place in Western Ukraine, um, and mentioned like things like howitzers and things like that 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 didn't think people didn't think they would get there, and now they're getting there, and now with this giant you know price tag or giant amount of money being funneled into into um, the Ukraine, which is proportional to the entire military budget of Russia. Um, I think Russia's military budget is about 60 billion. And now Ukraine's military budget or the amount the U.S. is putting into uh, Ukraine is 40 billion, which I think amounts to about 53 billion overall since the last two months. Um, Scott Ritter is now saying, oh, it looks like this is not just going to be a special operation as as Putin had been calling it. It looks like it's going to be a war. Um, and particularly with the idea of Finland and Sweden now entering NATO, he's kind of claiming that unless Russia changes its strategy and escalates its position into the war, that it looks like it will lose um, and that it will be drained just, like, just the way that, the, that we suspected the U.S. was trying to do. But he was saying he did not think the U.S. would be successful. And in a sense, I think you it's. I've always been, I've always paid a price for underestimating the wits and the smarts of the U.S. ruling class and its understanding of what it is capable of doing with its power and with its money. And, um, and so he has made a reassessment. I'm grateful for that. Um, but it has caused me to now actually, I'll just say it, it had, I had two feelings about it. One is it was like, oh shit, it looks like the 2019 NATO scenarios, which had end in billions of people dying, is starting to come to pass. Um, and I'll, maybe I'll say more about that later. I'll maybe read from that because now the long war scenario, the long war scenario is one that only Russia wins or ha- has to escalate in order to deal with. And that Russian escalation is a very big feature of some of the war game simulations I remember reading about in the 2019 war game stuff. And um, so it, 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 at one level, it made me more like, oh, shit, this stuff is coming to pass. And I just want to say that it had an, a, an interesting impact on me because, as you all know, I've been talking about World War III on what's left. And I've been saying this is the way I think capitalism is going like, to destroy at least the prospects of normal life for humans on the planet, um, or what I would describe as a, a normal life. Um, and I've gone, and that's something I've said many times on this show, and I've said it to people where I've said that my fears about how things go down are not about global warming or about even about environmental destruction, which I do think capitalism will rip the environment to shreds, even if I don't think global warming is the mechanism for doing it. But the, me- the way I always thought this thing would end for us was World War III. Um, and I would have to say reading this article and then taking this in really struck me more deeply, almost in the same way that this last year when I was at Mission in August, September, walking around my room and feeling like I'm not going to be here that long. And I had that same feeling inside my body and my heart and in, in myself about really the reality of nuclear war um, as a as kind of feeling inevitable and inexorable. I'm not saying it's going to happen next year. I'm not going to say it's going to happen or even this year or next year. 
but it's been interesting to, that's the effect it had on me. And I want to talk about it here. Um, and I know that me and my family are going to visit this summer. And I, I want to talk with them about that. I want to talk with them about kind of, if you will, getting right with God um, and just talking to people who I love about how do we deal with a world where things could end suddenly? And how do we deal with our relationships with one another in a world where things can end suddenly? So I want to start there because um, it, for whatever reason that I don't fully understand, when I read this particular article, the thought, the mental calculation of World War III went from something in my head to something deeper and a little bit deeper into my body. Um, so sharing that, maybe that's a long-winded way of saying, what do y'all think? But what do you think about what you read? Um, and I'm prepared to share more about like the 2019 scenario and stuff like that. I think it might be worth just for listeners who maybe haven't read the article or haven't read it yet to just read like the last paragraph where, um, who's the author? Mike Whitney basically makes that argument. I feel like it's concise enough that it kind of speaks to at least like the, I don't know, ground level of like why you might've taken it. Okay, is this what we're looking at right here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, most articles about Ritter's take in particular and quoting from the interview and everything, but this is basically where he ends up. So he says, in my humble opinion, Scott Ritter is gradually adjusting to the idea that the conflict in Ukraine is not, not just a regional skirmish between two quarrelsome neighbors, nor is it a proxy war between NATO and Russia. No, Ukraine is the first phase of a broader plan for crushing Russia, collapsing its economy, removing its leaders, seizing its natural resources, splintering its territory, and projecting U.S. power across Central Asia to the Pacific Rim. Ukraine is about hegemony, empire, and pure unalloyed power. Most important, Ukraine is the first battle in a third world war, a war that was concocted and launched by Washington to ensure another unchallenged century of American primacy. Yeah, I think that paragraph did get my attention. <laughs> go, yeah. go ahead, Jessica. Yeah, I mean, I, I didn't have quite such a visceral reaction to it. Um, and I didn't necessarily agree with, I think you kind of said this, Andy, but it kind of seemed like the writer was confused or like frustrated by Ritter like doing the, the switcheroo as he puts it um I didn't I mean I, I listened to the interview um that he's referencing and I did not get the sense that Ritter's like cheering on a world war or like an escalation in any way I just felt like this was his assessment based on you know the continually evolving situation. And I think like the distinction that Ritter's made, at least in what I've listened to, like from the beginning of his take between, uh, what does he call it? Like a special military operation versus a full-scale war is really important. And it just seems like he's responding to what he's seeing both from like a military tactics point of view and in that realm like I don't really know what to think because I don't know shit about military tactics um and 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 on that like it also wasn't I don't know you guys tell me what you think but it seemed like 
part of this, part of what is causing him to change his take is just the sheer like amount of weaponry being funneled in, right? Like it, I mean, it's an insane, like an insane amount of money. Um, so there's that, but I think also, I think he said at one point in the interview, um, like Russia being something about Russia being unable or unwilling to kind of change their tactics and to intercept some of this, um, you know, material and equipment that's coming in. Um, and I, yeah, I don't know, like, I'm curious to hear what you guys think in terms of like, is, is it a tactical or not a tactical choice, but like, is this, is this a choice that's Russia's making or are they just like unable to deal with this level of mobilization? Um, and I guess part, part of that, right. Is like, I remember when we were first in the first episode that we did talking about when it first kicked off, you know, we were really focused on kind of like the special military op, like in the East, like you were talking about Andy, like where they have been more dominant, um, which makes sense given the history and given the, you know, the divide in terms of ethnic Russians and all of that. Um, but if this is, if they're trying to just demilitarize the entire country, that's more what Ritter's describing by like a full scale war. And that is, it is really scary because it's really hard to see that going any direction other than escalation to the point of nuclear weapons being used either by the US or Russia or NATO or whatever. Um, so yeah, it is pretty scary. Yeah, so on that question of um, whether Russia is, um, you know, choosing uh, not to go further, right, from the, in the East, because like the perception in the news is that Russia has completely invade, invaded Ukraine, you know, it's, it's like the whole country under war, but it's not, there are sections, right, the strategic uh, sections, and that's what I think Scott Reeder uh, refers to as like the, um, what do you call the special operations, right? And he also mentions that if Russia was to commit, they would have to bring more troops and basically commit a full military uh, in order to take over. And then um, there's also the potential of having to go into Finland, right? Because that also is another strategic um, point. Uh, the other guy on the interview, Ryan McGowan, I think it's the name. Ray McGovern. Great, Ray McGovern. He talked about um, the, what do you call the, response time, right, to like a potential missile attack. And he said that, you know, it had become like nine minutes, right, at the, the time that the Russians had to respond to a potential attack. Then it went back to 30 minutes. And if we went to, if they, uh, the NATO and the West was able to put weapons in Finland, the response time was going to be like under nine minutes, like three minutes, I think. Three minutes. And, and so that is insane, right? Like that, that, that is almost ensures an, uh, an attack. And, and then it becomes all out war because the Russians have to respond. And, all right, so and just, I don't, I don't want to interrupt you, but just to be clear, and that's a really important point you're raising, Kenny. That question of three minutes is all around the idea of a first strike that would knock out the military capability of, it's a, mil, it's a, that question of time is important when you have two military opponents. Can you, can you knock your, your military opponent, your, the other nuclear power's ability to, to mount a, another nuclear response out. 
And so by bringing that time down to three minutes, they said that that means Russia has to automate its response. And the automation of its response means you're taking it out of human hands. And he had mentioned an event in 1983 where the U.S. was doing a war games thing that Russia thought was not a war, did not know it was a war game, and it led to a near nuclear confrontation. And that was human intervention that stopped it. So that thing you're saying is a big deal. No, it, it reminds me a little bit of um, the automation that has happened in the in Wall Street, you know, in trading, and how you know uh, it just gets out of hand, you know. <laughs> real quick and, and, and you know we've, we've been talking in this show about automation you know um and this is one of those implications right in, in the field of war uh where uh things can happen real quick and if things are automated at that point no one is no one has control of anything and then um <clears throat> so again to, to your question uh jessica um, I don't know. I almost feel that, uh, I don't know for certain, I almost feel like the Russians are actually being tentative because they didn't mount the full-scale war because I, I do think, and that, that is, the I think, the argument that was made by Scott a, a little bit, that um, Russia is, they're trying to lure Russia into a prolonged war. That's what, you know, the funding is about, right? That's the argument. That's why, um, you know, it's not about stopping a war. It's not about, you know, just ending the war. And, um, and coming to like a, an agreement in uh, sorts, I, I do think this has a long-term strategic point because like we, previously we talked about the Russian-China alliance, you know, that's really important. Uh, we've talked about how China doesn't have the military muscle and, and also like the geopolitical uh, positioning, you know, uh, Russia is important in, in, this, in I guess, the the prospects of China becoming the hegemon and gaining enough strength to stand on its own feet. Um, <clears throat> and so again, like Ukraine, and that's the argument that Scott is making. It's not just about, um, it's not just about lives, right? Like, like it's not just about Ukrainian lives. We've discussed here that the US and the West has willingly sacrificed Ukrainian lives. They don't care about them. And they actually push the hand of, uh, the hand of Russia. But listening to Scott and listening to the interview for the first time, I also had a similar reaction to you, Lipson, of the real possibility of things getting out of hand. Because um, I, I, I don't agree with Scott in the sense that he says that there is a new, um, uh, what, do you, what did he say? Uh, there's new people in charge that are basically maniacs, right? They, they do, they do want to use nuclear uh, power. And... I think there, I don't know particular about Scott, but I do think overall in society, there is this almost arrogant assumption that we're beyond those, that period of the Cold War. You know, there is this assumption that things will take care of themselves, right? But we are, what scares me is not even about these maniacs doing this stuff. They've always been there. They will always be there. What scares me is the level of, of a compliance, obviously, that we've talked about, the level of disengagement, the level of removal of these very realistic scenario in my mind in the lack of any sort of anti-war effort right even as cynical as i am about just demonstrations to be honest like that to me is not enough in general you know it, it, it's just a I, I usually call it a disney five slogan demonstration um even as, as as cynical as i am about that it's still a, a demonstration of some sort of interest and awareness but there is zero concern there is full commitment to show um, 
sympathy for Ukraine. There's plenty of flags in San Francisco, you know, of Ukrainian flags. And uh, through the Jimmy Dore show, I found out that Biden is going into Somalia again, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, no one's saying anything about that. But that's also about a strategic point. And there is an offensive that's being mounted by the West in the US especially, because the US is the one who's gonna be challenged by China. We know that's coming, that, that clash is coming at some point. We, like, just like you said, Lipson, we don't know if it's next year, the following year, in five years, the next decade, but it will come. It will come soon in some form. And Scott argues, and I do agree with him in that point, that this is the first act of the third world war. Because I did not, envision all the domino effect that it's had. Now we're talking about Finland. Now we're talking about Sweden. Now we're talking about more weapons in the area. You know, now we're talking automation of our response. And so, you know, you have to be really oblivious to not see how there is a potential, right, for things to get out of hand real quick where we don't have a say. Right, and me being a revolutionary socialist, this is why again is the impetus that we have to take control, we have to take over, we have to take down our own governments. You know, these maniacs who who you know probably think they will be safe in a bunker somewhere, you know, or probably think that they can win, and, and just like Scott expressed that they think that the the the, the I guess their, their their answer is to be the bigger bully. Right. It's not about de-escalating. There is no, um, I don't think there's room for that. You know, and if anything, I do think the Russians might be showing a little more restraint, you know, because from the beginning, um, because I do think they, they are aware of their limited, you know, um, uh, capacity to engage in a prolonged war. And so they have to weigh th these things. And, you know, and China is not fully there to back them up yet. Uh, but at the same time, they don't, they, don't, they don't have another option but to push back, ready right? to punch back and try to be strategic about it. But I think that the money that the West is dumping in shows what the West is about. I'm not even like, for me, it's not even about Russia. It's what the West is doing because they are ready to carry this shit out for, for a while. You know, they are ready to mount an attack. They're ready to say, oh, come on, Finland, come on, Sweden. Like, you know, when Russia has publicly stated, right? Like don't push up on our borders. That's the reason they went to war in, in Ukraine. You know, it, it, forget denazification, forget, you know, that demilitar well, demilitarization is a thing. They have to, they, they can't have people on their borders. You know, and it's, I don't think it's just about history. It's not just about Napoleon. It's not just about the Nazis. It's about their future, you know, and, and it's not just about some, you know, evil maniac, you know, who, who is irrational, right? It's actually a very rational response to an attack. And, and you know, the, the, they're sacrificing, everyone is sacrificing Ukrainians and this is the first act. So we don't know who else will be sacrificed in the next round of that proxy war because the head on conflict might come later, but just like the Cold War, just like the World Wars, the people who pay the price are the, the domino piece in, in the middle and you, Ukraine is one of these and so, Finland would maybe the next one, you know, Sweden and the ones that border Russia. But I don't know, I, I guess my point is that I am concerned, you know, things are escalating very quickly. When we first talked about Ukraine, we didn't think it would go to the, this far and it has gone well beyond anything I could have predicted. 
and, and I'm and I'm learning, you know, about the details of the strategic military moves that are happening, and that is telling me that you better get ready for a prolonged conflict in Ukraine. Yeah, I mean, I I would say that um, Russia has probably shown a restraint in its offensive actions that Scott Ritter would say that was a mistake. You you needed to go more aggressive. And I didn't know this. He had hit, both he and McGovern mentioned in the interview that Putin had gone to Biden and was in December of 2021. Uh, yeah, yeah, December of 2021 to try to like reach an agreement on phone that, you know, something's going to have to be figured out here in Ukraine. And Biden had made a an agreement, gentlemen's agreement to do so. And then they say, oh, the U.S. went back on its word again, you know, and Ritter said, look, you cannot trust the United States and the U.S. is full of liars and things like that. That's true about Russia. That's true about China. That is just true about the di diplomacy, you know, like about it's true about the nation states, I would say, under capitalism. They have to. I mean, if I'm playing a game of risk against Kenny and Jessica, the, I win that game by lying to you. Like and I win that game by telling you lies, but doing things that seem want to make you think that I'm being truthful and that you, I can be trusted so I can turn on you at an up at the last moment when you're not ready. That's how the game is played. And I do believe that that's the game that is playing, the global game that's being played. And that's largely, you know, risk and monopoly, if you put them together, in my mind, are games that describe how, how capitalism works, um, roughly. Um, and the other thing he said that I thought was interesting was that the lesson learned by China, because they have eyes on Taiwan, is if you go, go, go hard and go strong and like you have to knock them out soon because if you don't, the other side is going to get in there and start to bleed you with with time again. So that was interesting to me to hear that. Um, and I agree with you, Kenny, it's not about maniacs. Um, maniacs can't think straight. And uh, I don't think we have Russian leaders who are maniacs. I don't think we have U.S. leaders who are maniacs. They might seem like maniacs, but if if cap if what you and I, Kenny, are, say about capitalism is true, and I'm not this, I'm not saying you don't think this, Jessica. I'm just saying Kenny and I have gone on record here as saying like we think this is not NWO. This is not a new world order thing. This is not a global cabal. This is this is a global capitalist system eating itself in a competitive frenzy. Um, but if the game is based on competition, then if you are going to try to win that game, you better have people. Who, who only think in terms of we will win this game and who will be true believers in thinking they will win this game. Because if you don't have those people who think they can win, they will lose. And if they lose, like there is no loss in capitalism. Loss just means you get, you get smashed and eaten up by a monopoly. That's what it means economically. And politically, it means your, your nation gets, gets subsumed under another nation who is the winner. Because there's no... There's no neutrality under capitalism. You either advance and are and are taking somebody else down, or you are being taken down. That's the that's the case in the marketplace, and that's the case I would say in the globe. Um, and the, I think the NWO people look and see these maniacs and think that they're hanging out in like secret society cabals. And I don't think I don't think that I don't think that's what's going on. I think they are they perceived as maniacs because. They believe they can win in a system that ultimately, I would say, cannot be won because of crisis. It will collapse in on itself. Um, 
and it will destroy humanity in the process, um, ultimately. Uh, so that's what makes them seem crazy, but that's, that's just the situation. We are, the system is crazy, and the people who are going to try to win that game will have to be kind of nuts themselves. But I think they are, they are extremely bright and intelligent, and um, they know how power is managed clearly, like in ways that I don't like what I'm in comparison to these people. Um, and, and I think we're seeing that. Um, but I don't think it can work because I do think it's a, it's a global competitive system. Yeah. Yeah. Or Kenny, I don't know. You raised your hand like you had, <laughs> you can go first if you want. Yeah. I just wanted to add that, you know, I always think back to history, right. And, and like, again, I do think there is some sort of arrogance that we think we've moved beyond, we're more aware in that, you know, like, the, the point when I wanted to make is that we've also brought this up in a previous episode where we've said that it took two world wars, right, for Great Britain to capitulate, you know, to the U.S. basically, the U.S. becoming the hegemon of the world. It took two world wars, massive death, massive display of the latest technology, um, you know, for winning the wars. And it also took two atomic bombs, you know, for the U.S. to ensure its its power. And, you know, like, uh, I think that people feel that the nuclear threat was only during the Cold War, right? Like, and, and, and maybe we're a generation removed from that. But I, I think it's very much alive. And it's... Uh, and then Scott Ritter made that point that, you know, the U.S. is an empire in decline and an empire in this empire is different than all the other empires than the British Empire. This empire has 800 plus military bases around the world. This this is a global situation. We we have we, we know history right, of, of uh, civilizations, quote unquote, that collapse right, for different reasons. But this one is a global one, you know, that is very much connected. And, and so in, in, in refusing to give its power willingly, the, 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 he argues, and I agree with him, the U.S. will take down the whole damn world with it, you know, rather than just give up, you know, power uh, by itself. And, you know, that, that, that is how empires go down, violent deaths. But I, I don't know. I was just thinking about, um, like, the public perception of like if this is turning into a full scale war, but then for my part, like, I don't know, I've in some ways had trouble taking it super seriously um, from like a World War Three type of scenario, just because like we keep seeing, like all our politicians are like being flown out there for photo ops with Zelensky, like Nancy Pelosi's, like this is supposed to be a war zone. You know, I I don't know. Um, so I think that's I don't know. It's just it's just weird. And I mean, it, it obviously like so much of it is just what like fake image can we prop up for the American public um, so that they're not gonna whatever surround the White House and say stop giving our fucking tax money to Nazis, but. Um, yeah. And then, so on the whole sort of global 
nation state competition thing. Um, I did just want to come back because Kenny had brought up Somalia, right? Um, and obviously, it's it's just a um, great example of the of the hypocrisy, right? Of especially of the American left because nobody's really talking about it. They're covering it, or not nobody, but most people aren't covering it. Certainly, the mainstream's not covering it. Nobody's got you know solidarity. I stand with. Um, Somalia flags or whatever. Um, but I, I wanted to bring up this article that I saw, I think it was Wyatt Reed that posted it a couple days ago um, about, so the US, the headline is, uh, the US seeks to pass law to monitor Russia's activities in Africa. Um, so apparently this went through the Senate and um, last month, April 27th, um, so pretty recently. Uh, United States seeking to pass a law to counter Russia and Africa by tracking its military operations, investments, oligarchs, and suspected illicit financial flows, um, blah, blah, blah. We can link it below so people can check out the full article. Um, we just thought it was interesting, like this whole, like I guess most of the African nations, right, um, refused to join the whole like Putin evil charade. Um and so now, like, basically, we want to put through this legislation to, like, hold accountable uh, sovereign African governments who are, like, complicit or, I mean, probably, like, just even allegedly complicit in, like, aiding Russian influence, right? And I just, it, obviously, it's not a coincidence. It's just another example of how, from the American perspective, like, it does not look like we are expecting this to be some sort of short-lived thing. Um, I mean, obviously the, the weaponry, right? Like that is a huge cash cow for um, the weapons industry. Um, that's nothing new, but I just thought it was an interesting, just in terms of like the, the global environment, um, you know, and there's also, I'm thinking about how China, right? As obviously very, interested and involved in creating trade relationships and, you know, um, accessing African oil and gas, all of that kind of um, stuff, which obviously from a global like competitor thing, like we, it's like, oh, we want that gas, right? Which I'm sure is part of why we're sending troops back into Somalia, right? Um, and again, like it's the left that's doing it. Trump had actually pulled them out. And so now they're being redeployed to supposedly, I don't even know. Like, Kenny, do you even know what the, what the like supposed reason is? Is it just democracy or it's about, democracy? It's about terrorism, according to them. Al-Shabaab, I think it's the, the group that they're. Oh, okay. Yeah. So like Al-Shabaab's linked to Al-Qaeda or like. Yeah. And so like, that's kind of like the the premise and I, I think that it was about uh they were using that uh 2001 um act right like the whatever terrorism act uh to have work uh powers and stuff um that's what i heard at least but i don't entirely know but i do think what you're saying makes sense that you know there is that angle right that africa will be a terrain of you know contention and there will be a new repartition in some sort of way there already is there has been you know, China has hands in there. Uh, the U.S. wants to make sure they're in there because it's not um, 
for me at least. Uh, sorry, I don't know if you. No, no, you go, go for it, go for it. And then uh, it's it's not just it's about people, right? We talked about data mining. It's about resources. It's about also Somalia. It's on that the Gulf, right? Like a uh, it, it's act, it, you know, trade routes and. Uh, you know, I, I also wonder how that plays with India too, you know, like through that route, because India hasn't come into the picture, into the fo into focus here, but India is, I think it's gonna have to choose at some point what side they're on. Um, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, it, it, it's scary because uh, again, many, I think we're gonna see more pieces move on the chessboard. And, you know, I don't even know, I'm just catching up. Like things, is, things are moving really fast. Yeah, I mean, when I saw the stuff on Somalia, which I didn't know about, to me, and I didn't know how much they were making the language around Russia, but I don't make a distinction between the U.S. Make, talking about taking on or monitoring Russia and U.S. monitoring China. So I look at what the U.S. is doing in Somalia and militarizing and creating a larger military presence in Somalia as an attempt to, to again, fight the great game in Russia, in Africa, in relationship to China. Um, and so that that's what I see there. And I think <clears throat> I, I, my take on the photo op stuff is, is it's, it's actually, it's a photo op, yes, but it represents politicians who are the faces of these states saying we are committed to this country. We are committed to this cause. So those aren't, those aren't small things when they, when they go there and do that. And they're basically saying, we feel safe here because we're going to make it safe here. Even if we know that your country's at war, we are prepared to make, whether you're, even if you're not in NATO, to say this is going to be a place where U.S. politicians can come and do photo ops because we're not going to let you get taken over by an empire. We are going to be part of defending you. So to me, that's, that's, that's the way the United States says in a photo op, we're committed, we're all in. And in addition... There's, 50, there's $40 billion they voted on that not a single Democrat, including all the squad and all them, all of them voted for it. The only ones to found voting against it were some marginalized Republicans because most of the Republican establishment is with it. The U.S. establishment is with this whole thing. Um, there was some marginal Republicans or, you know, seen on the fringe um, who were called Putin lovers and Putin supporters for for opposing this thing or for even presenting opposition to it. Um, so that, that just shows me the U S is committed. Um, I guess I will, I want to share the, the thing because it does appear that Kenny and I have had kind of the same kind of like, Whoa, this, this is coming in like this notion of the inevitability of this thing is come in on us more deeply maybe than it has you, Jessica. And I think, I think that's interesting. And I want to read um, this thing from the 2019 war game stuff. Um, so let me share my screen. And I also, it, when I read it, you know, I was talking to my brother who read, who's been doing these podcasts, reading, uh, listenings to World War I and World War II. And it's something he had mentioned that I, I knew was true. And I've seen as true is that people often try to talk about how, what could have been done for World War I not to not happen? What could have been done toward World War II? And in each case, the, the pieces as they move into place, there's nothing that could have been done. If the moves that were made in all cases in order by each of the, the parties involved were the 
were the only moves they could make if they really had a plan, if they really had a chain, if they really thought they were going to win and survive and, and expand and go on. And if they didn't make those moves, that meant they were giving up. And that's not a good move unless you're prepared to surrender. And you, they only surrender when they're fully defeated, right? So I, I feel that same way. There's this, there's this inexorableness about every move that's being made as Russia now must be more aggressive in Western Ukraine. And if Finland is invited in, Russia is, then must engage Finland in the war and draw them into that war or else they have missiles three minutes from, or they, or they invite the situation. And in fact, NATO being a NATO member means they kind of, Finland kind of has to be prepared to put things which are called defense missiles, but which can be readily turned into offense missiles. And Russia knows that. So it's, you know, it's not like these people don't know this stuff. Um, so I want to read this. Uh, this was from the article about, uh, that I had read early on, uh, NATO intervention in Ukraine could spark nuclear war. Here's how it could happen. Um, and setting the scene for war. The scenario the group decided to test back in late 2019 was similar to today. Russia decided to invade Ukraine under the excuse that it is that it must defend Russian-speaking peoples that are being oppressed by Ukrainian fascist government. In our scenario, we assume Russia performs far more admirably than it does today, but has more limited objectives in that Moscow wants to connect Crimea to separatist regions in the eastern Ukraine that are under its effective control. We assumed that Russia does that quickly achieving most of its military objectives in roughly four days. But Ukraine does not give up so easily. Just like in real life today, Ukrainian forces, after taking heavy losses, mount an impressive counterattack, whereby Russia loses over 100 tanks and over 2,500 soldiers. Um, images on social media, whatever. Putin is outraged. He thought Ukraine would simply roll over, but he does not factor into his calculus the nearly decades-long training Kiev um, or Kiev received from the US and NATO, nor the Ukrainians' military buildup for the last several years that was focused on this scenario. Russia then decides that its limited military objectives were a mistake and that all Ukraine must be demilitarized. Moscow then launches a, a massive ballistic and cruise missile strike, followed up by Russia's Air Force launching its own shock and awe campaign, destroying a vast majority of Ukraine's command and control structure, Air Force, air defense, and armor units in the process. At the same time, Russia starts surging troops to the borders of Ukraine in what looks like an imminent general invasion and occupation of the entire country. They call this the spark. And this is, again, the war game simulation, how it went. Here's why things turn for the worse. Here's where things turn for the worse. A Russian ballistic missile guidance system fails and crash lands into NATO member Poland, killing 34 civilians as it tragically lands into a populated village along the Polish-Ukraine border. While the missile was not directed at Poland intentionally, pictures on social media show, okay, it gets, it gets uh, built up. To its credit, Poland, which has its own tortured history with the Soviet Union and Russia, does its best to show restraint. While not responding with its own military, it leads an effort to see Moscow. It leads an effort to see Moscow pay a steep price for its aggression in Ukraine and actions, even unintentional, in Poland. Warsaw leads a diplomatic and economic boycott of Moscow, resulting in Russia being kicked out of SWIFT, uh, as well as direct sanctions on Russian banks, similar to what we are seeing today. Um, in our scenario, Russia's reaction is also SWIFT. Moscow decides to launch a massive cyber attack on Poland, have, having based uh, cyber warriors all throughout NATO territory using their geography and proxy servers to mask the origin of the attack. Russia in just two hours takes offline Poland's entire electrical grid, banking sector, energy plants, and more, essentially taking Poland back into the Stone Age. And this is where the nightmare begins. Even though attribution is hard to achieve, Poland appeals to NATO and starts to pri privately share its desire to invoke Article 5 of the NATO Charter, 
declaring that an attack on, on one is an attack on the entire alliance. NATO is worried, and there is a debate on how far to punish Russia while also feeling as if they do not have a clear military objective amongst the member states, as some want to respond to what happened to Poland while others feel they must intervene militarily in Ukraine. Um, here's where NATO surprises everyone. The alliance decides to set up a limited no-fly zone around the Ukrainian city of Lviv, Lviv, Lviv to protect innocent civilians and refugees that are trapped and have nowhere to go. Russia is warned. NATO is not intervening in the conflict, but will ensure that its planes and airspace around Lviv are protected. NATO does make it clear its jets will be in the skies about Ukraine, but will not operate from, uh, from Ukrainian territory. In, Mos in Moscow, Putin now gets a sense that NATO is destined to intervene on Ukrainian side. Russia fears NATO will use this protected corridor as a base of operations to send ever more sophisticated weapons. And with its economy now in a tailspin due to sanctions, Putin feels the walls closing in on him. Before NATO can impose, impose a no-fly zone, Putin orders strikes on any remaining airfields and military assets around leave. Um, he says, here's where Putin miscalculates and sets the stage for NATO-Russia war. Putin orders an, another massive cyber attack on the Baltic states, military infrastructure, thinking NATO will use the Baltics to state will use the Baltics to stage an invasion of Russia. This ends up being the last straw for NATO, which then decides direct intervention in Ukrainian. In in Ukraine is necessary to push back against Russian aggression. Before even an announcement is made, Russian intelligence sees missiles and troops movements that indicate an impending NATO attack and decide to first strike with tactical nuclear weapons. NATO decides to respond in kind. Russia then targets European cities with nuclear weapons, with NATO and America also responding in kind. What is left is nothing short of an apocalypse with what we estimate is a billion people dead. Uh, that was probably a longer reading than necessary, but again, there were features of this. Um, maybe when I do the editing, I'll maybe cut some of the part, but there are just features of this that resonate with what I see happening here. Uh, there's no mention of Finland in this war game, but the war is going longer. The war is extending itself. The war is broadening. Um, and the last part, they, they, the highlight that you saw here at the end, no war goes as planned. There are so many more opportunities now for strange things to happen that can lead to just a series of dominoes that um, they just kind of passively go, oh, well, Russia doesn't NATO's nuclear strike. NATO has to respond. Cities get nuked. Billion people dead. What are you going to do? Um, but what year was this put out? 2019. You know, and it was it was the thing that was interesting is that the simulations they did all seem to generally go in this direction. Like they all seem to go towards nuclear war, hundreds of millions, billions dead, you know, and they so they know this. Um, and so they know this and yet they're they're they are determined to see this through, to see if they can find that one. It's like the goddamn infinity, uh, infinity war where Dr. Strange has says there's one way to beat Thanos. You know, we're going to do this. We're going to find that one way to beat Thanos. You know, the U.S. is going to do this and find this one way to beat the odds where they defeat their enemies and the, and the world is not incinerated. And that's, that apparently is the task they've set before themselves. I guess I have a question just from my own like ignorance of not having studied military history and war games like super closely, but like, are these simulations historically 
like what are they I know what their like professed purpose is but what like what actually is there like is it to cultivate a, a certain type of public perception is it is it have they been used to fear monger are they usually like predictive in an accurate way I mean it sounds like yeah I mean a lot of it's like spooky um and I know like you know with the with the health stuff right like we've seen that come true right like in a very short turnaround yes so is it similar I think I think you could say that you could say that I mean most of these things are not publicized although there was a recent war game simulation that was literally put up on NBC between China and the United States over I saw a little bit of that one. You know? yeah. um, but this one wasn't like, it's not like a lot of people have been hearing about this. So the general idea is that the, you, they hire people to play the U S side to say, you know what the U S is capable of doing. And you, and, the, and then you hire people to be NATO and you hire people to be Russia. And then you say, be smart and do, and try to win this game. So what moves do you make? And that's and so they're attempting to try to prepare for the kinds of moves their opponent might make. As you notice, they hire these people to be smart, but in the in the in the press and in the media, they talk about these people like they're madmen. They know that they are not. They are hiring the smartest people who know with military strategy, who know how to win wars and how all this stuff is done, and that's who they think their opponents are behind the scenes, but. To us, they have to talk about them like they're crazy. And at least for me, what informs like, you know, the likely scenario of this is like, like what I think of capitalism, right? And and just like also listening to, you know, history or reading history, you know, and and just the inevitable clashes, right? When one power wants to replace another power. And so in my mind, it's coming, you know, like, I don't know if it's like this will be the exact scenario. It's likely, you know, and, and quite honestly, I don't think I don't think anyone can fully predict, you know, the exact time frame or the exact, you know, way things are gonna develop. You can get a take a guess, right? And like this is a good guess because we're seeing things unfold in front of us. And and it's it's about how quickly, you know, they can devolve into something, you know, very catastrophic. Um, you know, in, again, because my own understanding of capitalism and the system and how it works. And, and this is again, where we deviate with people we've had in our show, right? Like, or, or people that argue the new world order and these like, um, unified forces making decisions to, you know, I guess, uh, deceive us into, you know, like sacrifice some people in order to deceive us to for the big plan and and I actually I don't think there is a big plan you know everyone's like has their own plans they're competing to impose their own plan and that's why shit gets out of hand and that's what we said that there's no one really driving the bus you know because at one point or another you know all these people who are very smart you know like and and like Gibson said their job is to advance the interests of their own you know of their own people um all those uh, decisions add up to something catastrophic because they just have to, you know, it keeps escalating. It gets out of hand. And at some point you, you can't back down. Um, and, and, and that's why I'm like, this could be it. You know, 
maybe not, you know, and, but I'm still holding my breath waiting for the, you know, the situation, but it is very concerning, you know, because like, even like countries, right, that have historically, quote unquote, been neutral, um, are coming into the full real quick, you know, in, in, in what we know, like we, I think, we, I think it's hard to say that the U.S. has a strong hand, you know, like that the U.S. is not losing power in the world. It's really hard to argue against that. I think personally, uh, and, and we know that China is rising, you know, in its own way, and you know, in like I'm not even like. I don't know how much I actually agree with like the, the scenario where Russia is the aggressor with a nuclear bomb. It, it doesn't have to be Russia. You know what I mean? And like, um, but I don't know. I guess my point is like there, yes, there is some logic, but at some point it's just, it, it just hell. It just hell breaks loose. And even the smartest people who think they can control some shit, especially when it's automated, it's fucking game over. You know, and, and that's why I cited the, the this, you know, that's why I think it's important to understand the implications of AI in this whole system, you know, uh, and because I, it, it's still under human control and human, you know, and, and, and again, like the people who are programming these systems are programming the systems to win, you know, and in order to win, you, you just, you can't win being nice in this game. You know, you can't be in, you can't win being humanitarian. You can't win being, you know, um, you know, not being sexist, not being racist. You have to be everything. You have to be, you know, fucking go read Machiavelli, you know, <laughs> people have it. You know what I mean? Like, you can't be, what, what was it? Like, if you can be loved and feared, that's great. But if you have to choose one or the other, you better be feared. You know, that, that's, that be, that's better for governing you know, the world. And, and like, I do think the facade of the U.S. is like, of as a humanitarian bullshit, like it's going to come down very soon because they're, they're going to have to show its fucking brutality even more, you know, naked brutality. And, and, and so I'm not saying that Russia is, is like a complete victim. Hell no. You know, they have their own interests, uh, but they are being pushed into a corner, you know, and, and it's not even about Russia to me. Again, we, we've made this point already. It, 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 but Russia does have the cap, the capability of you know uh, of, of participating in the dis common destruction of the world. It's funny because it brings me back to Nicaragua when I lived there for two years. And Russians, uh, this Russian military, a lot of people who are in the military in Nicaragua have studied in Russia. They, a lot of them speak Russian. There's a lot of Russian weaponry. And you know, like I remember my friends making this argument: Oh, Russians are badass. You know, they could kick the USS. And I remember making the argument, like, really, it doesn't fucking matter. Like, they'll destroy everyone. And, like, they will be, you know, if they get into a big fight, you know, it doesn't matter that Russia is better or smaller. They have nuclear capacity. And, and, and then it's game over. If, like, just, say like, a few, you know, a few bombs can wreak havoc in the world. And, it, and, like, because people talk about, like, the thousands of nuclear bombs, that, you know, versus these thousands of nuclear bombs. You don't need a thousand, you know, to, to wreak havoc. You just need a couple and at, at some point like you know you, you know when people attack you you lose even you know you lose rationality like if people attack you even the, the very you know people that are being governed are going to ask for the response so if we're looking at this from a 
not from a new world order like centralized framework and rather as like you said kenny like different players playing to win um like who and who in your guys's view i'm like trying to play neutral here even though in this whole scenario clearly the u.s is not accepting neutrality and from anyone anywhere um but who benefits from a nuclear war like i mean because from a like a new world order framework i suppose there's there's this sort of like eugenicist like you know we need to eliminate a certain percentage of the world's population blah 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 um and i know you guys are describing it as like getting out of hand right like yeah i mean obviously like no one wins um but at the same time we're talking about these people like no they're not they're not stupid it's silly to underestimate them so i don't know i I guess i'm having a little trouble like squaring those two thoughts like who really wants that or doesn't not want it enough to actually pull the trigger like if we were to detonate another nuclear at least what i what i think could happen is what was discussing that scenario right an accident you know or or some shit that just is it's like wasn't predicted in in their own uh games right uh game uh what do you call um in their analysis you know some shit that just happens right just say i don't know there's been moments in in history right where people are pointing at each other and someone shoots the first bullet and then it just becomes you know, a, a shootout, and that's kind of what I see. Is it's not even that. It's just that you have to front. You know, it's like, and you have to show strength. And then an accident could happen. You know, we were we we've run through scenarios during the Cold War, right, where like humans uh, actually prevented nuclear war from happening because there were mistakes that happened. Bombs fell and they didn't fucking blow up. You know, out of the sky. Like right now, shit is moving around the world. I'm sure of that. Like, you know, weapons are moving around the world. You know, we know it for a fact in Ukraine, but, you know, even Scott uh, Ritter talked about, like, you know, the U.S., for example, uh, establishing a base in the Black Sea. Uh, it, it involves Lithuania. It involves, we talked about Finland. And, and so the, the, the gearing up for, you know, you cannot wait. You cannot sit back and wait. You have to be proactive. And in being proactive, you create tension, and and that's what I'm what I what I mean. Like one bad incident can trigger a shootout, and then no one wins, you know. Uh, and so I, I don't know. Like that's the scenario I see. And if nuclear wars are used, then you know, I mean, do you want to wait for the nuclear fallout on this? Even if the bombs are not dropped here, you know, it's going to affect us, you know, in a massive way. Yeah, and I. And I, I assume, Jessica, that I think you're coming, you are coming more from that globalist framework that, correct, in terms of how you understand what's going on. I'm just making, I'm making an, an assumption that's inaccurate. I don't um, know. I feel push and pull every week. Okay. okay. <laughs> um, well, the reason I say that is because it's not really a question of who wins. The question posed to our rulers is how will we win? That is the question they must they must answer, and the and I believe that's a, so I believe they're competing, and it's not how we win over over how do we convince how do we as a global elite who are all working together how do we win over our, 
But, and there is that question of how do we win over our, how do we smash our people? That's part of winning. But I do believe they're in a competition whose goal is to say, our job is to figure out how to win. And so they know China's nuclear armed. They know Russia's nuclear armed. And they know Russia and China seem to be coming together with, from a sense of a threat from the West and from the United States. So the question to the U.S. rulers is how do we win? I think they're asking that question, and I think we're starting to see how they think they're going to do it, which is push Russia to the brink and at the same time force European, force European people who are on the fence or European countries who are on the fence to align closer to us as we choose sides. Uh, Ritter also mentioned that all the success U.S. is having in Europe, China is having that success in the South, South Pacific and the Philippines, um, in sections of Asia building their kind of consolidating an empire there. But if they can do that, then if the U.S. can put their missiles just close enough to a situation where they are first strike capable, then you win by knocking out your opponent's forces because you know that you can't risk losing in a nuclear war. You must win the nuclear war. So first strike is the way you would do that. So that's the situation the U.S. is putting itself in. But the war gamers know that if the other side gets to a place where first, where they, where they are in that first strike threshold, they can't get there because then they lose. So they can't allow Russia cannot allow itself to get to a place where its its enemy is capable of doing a first strike that can knock out itself. So then Russia has to act before that happens because if they wait, then it's over. And so it's not a question of who. Who, who will win out of such a thing? The, f the question is, that's posed to each ruling class, is how will we win? And that's what the U.S. is doing. And the problem is that they're not in control of the process. They can ask the question, how will we win? But they're not in control of the outcome of the game. Um, if they were, I personally believe that this was NWO stuff, I would feel a sense of relief knowing that inevitably, if Putin was serious, he would be taken down, like internally, you know, in the way that we see that happens within the U.S. ruling class when they take out one of their guys. Um, but I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think if there's a takedown, it's going to happen either from a country who gets first struck and is not able to act in response to it or um, or who doesn't who won't allow that to happen and, and, and then chooses to strike first out of the last-ditch effort to not lose. And at least for me too is, because that I guess that's one of my problems with like the new world order analysis, right? Is that um, this assumption, right? Like the, it's kind of like the neoliberal project. Like if people have economic ties, they won't have any incentive to fight each other or to bring the world to that point. Um, but I, I actually expect, you know, because I, I think this is a partition. This is where people are starting to choose sides. And we're going to see some of those ties maybe loosen up, you know, and, and, and people like nation states become more guarded about like their technology or their capabilities. Uh, I, I actually, I expect that. And yeah, because again, it is a competitive game ultimately. And, and ultimately it's about your people, your, you know, your class, your business, you know, and um, your power. And 
there is one thing that underwrites this system and really every system that has existed in the history is violence. You know, and whoever has the biggest hammer uh, will win, you know, has potentially, you know, the, the, uh, the, has the potential of winning the game, you know, and, and, and you have to wield that hammer, you know, and at some point, and I, and I think that maybe what maybe has happened, you know, we are so removed from, that you know the memory we know it from the history books of those two atomic bombs you know and i don't know i'm just thinking that maybe we are too removed from that and that it is it is possible you know and and uh, yeah i mean i just don't think anyone is really driving the bus and 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 economic ties are not enough capital is not loyal to you know to life Capital is is loyal to power, to winning, and to being the dominant force in whether it's the marketplace or global politics. Well, you guys oh. are just a bundle yeah. of joy. <laughs> <laughs> is it, so is there a scenario? Apparently, I'm just interviewing you guys at this point. Yeah. <laughs> is there a scenario that you can feasibly imagine where this doesn't escalate to nuclear war? Like, especially in light of that you know, opening piece that the article that we looked at. Not with the system in, intact as it is. The, on, the only way I see this not going, not event inevitably happening is, is a revolution. Governments are going to have to be taken down and systems of how the globe operates are going to have to be dismantled at the same time. It's not enough to replace them with obviously the Bernie Sanders. <laughs> Believe that piece of shit just voted for forty billion dollars worth of weapons. Yeah, so yeah, we talked. You just said, you know, like again, that's your. That's really our only uh, kind of option. We've talked about taking override power and deciding things and messing shit up for the people who are ruling. And historically, I think there is uh, again somewhere that. Some uh, anthropologists talked about that the, the pattern in uh, civilizations that collapse was the disconnect of the ruling class and the people govern. You know, and so we're gonna have to take over and govern ourselves. You know, or, or, or you know, and understand. And I do think, I mean, like I know it's it's a tall task. It is. You know, most people I talk to, they they don't see it at all. You know, like my friends, they told me, Kenny, this country's big. You know, how are you gonna bring people together? And, and I'm thinking. Fucking India, you know, 300 million people strike, you know, and, and then, you know, like, I guess we have to de uh, uneducate ourselves, I guess, you know, and, and, and you know, and, and realize the, the power that we have collectively, right? That's, just, that's the reason I, I think I'm a, I am a socialist, you know, because I believe in that collective power. I'm not saying that it's easy or even, you know, I have to believe it's possible, you know, I have to. Otherwise, again, like I'm just gonna be a nihilist and not, you know, <laughs> and just say, ah, shit, it goes to hell. Like I believe in, in, in people, in, in, in good nature, and, you know, in, in that we can take over, you know, these people who think they're smarter than us, who are the quote-unquote experts, you know, but are playing this dangerous game, you know, I, I, and that's why I'm a communist, right? Because I believe in community, not, not like the state running bullshit no i believe in community and the power of knowing each other and the power of understanding each other 
you know, I, I believe in humanity, you know, like in, in the power of caring for each other, you know, in, 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 you know, so fuck this right wing, left wing, you know, binary. It's like, I see you hurting, you know, I care about you. I see you getting fucked up, you know, I care about you, you know, not just looking and by the side and not doing anything, you know, so that's why I talk about this and that's why I have to be real, you know, like this is what I think could happen. So we better get our shit together and do something different take control of our own lives, our own intellect, you know, because like, that's the reason I, I'm, I'm incessant about this shit with my family, with everyone, because I think people can understand, you know, like sometimes we've been taught that we're not experts. So we don't even want to engage in a topic. We don't even want to ask questions. You know, we don't want to have an opinion, but you have to, if you want to change this world, you know, and, and I think enough people are, at least around me, are breaking down, like mentally, physically, spiritually, in all ways. You know, that should be enough to, you know, like to, 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 to say some, something doesn't add up, some shit doesn't add up, you know, so, so fight those fuckers who want to push the conspiracy theories if you have some ideas that don't add up to the mainstream bullshit. That's what we have this show, right? And so I want to believe in that, and, and, you know, and like, if, and if we go fucking down, I want to go down fighting, you know, like, I, I want to go down giving it like a fucking hell, you know, of a try in order to to fucking shift things you know like yeah it's gloomy you know and it's very likely that could happen you know it's been in the fucking cards for decades now you know like the nuclear uh, prospect and i think it's ramping up again but again i, I want to believe in people who believe in community and want to show up for each other but if you want to be an individualistic asshole who like wants to complain you might fucking guess, but I'll try to dance, you know, with people, even if fucking blows up. Yeah, I'll be curious to hear what comes of those conversations you were talking about having with your family, Andy, because I feel like where we've ended up, you know, especially with everything Kenny just said, kind of brings us back to like what we were talking about originally doing for this week is this question of like, how do you build a movement? How do you build resistance? What does activism look like? Like, how do you, how do you make a revolution or community making whatever label you want to slap on it? Um, because I, I mean, I share that base hope in humanity and yeah, it's like the, the description you gave for like why you're a communist is, is sort of similar for me and why I'm more sort of like an anarchist, you know, everybody associates that word with chaos and violence and and kind of like the individualistic like every man for himself or whatever but to me like at base that's more it's more actually about believing in humanity's innate capability to provide mutual aid and to get along and to build our own societies without a state like I don't believe that we actually need that in order to live in in a healthy and happy and sustainable way um, I actually think we're quite capable. That said, I mean, you're looking at these timelines with that war games thing, with <laughs> Scott Ritter's assessment. I mean, every direction you you look, it's like, I, I mean, we're at like 11:59 here. It feels like, how, you know, and I'm just thinking about even the lockdowns, which okay, they're not, it's not on the level of a nuclear war, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to actually imagine like if the U S were to be 
you know, the one, the, the first aggressor, um, you know, what, what would the reaction be like, then what, right on our, obviously it's going to be massive death and destruction, um, in the area where that weapon is deployed in the surrounding area. And I'm sure there would be repercussions all over the world, but I mean, I don't even know, but the lockdowns, like we're talking about millions and millions of people being thrown, you know, very quickly, like into poverty, being deprived of just the most basic things. Um, Yes, like all around the world and the global South, especially, but also here in America. I mean, it's pretty crazy, like just the escalation and just the resistance that all of us have encountered trying to build some kind of just like basic community of, of, yeah, resistors, I guess. Oh my God. I like just thinking about that in, in, in the context of a timeline. It's pretty scary. It's a pretty tall order. Yeah. <laughs> I, I had more, I don't know. Yeah. Strategy, I guess. I mean, you are absolutely right, Jessica, that the, this episode has ended where the episode we were planning on having would in some ways pick up, you know, like, um, like, okay, what do we do now? And I don't think we could, we're not going to have that conversation fully right now, but I guess what I would say is, as I've said before, I think I'm, I'm, I'm not optimistic. I, I agree with Kenny. If I was completely hopeless, I wouldn't be doing what's left and I wouldn't be trying to go to the farmer's market and talking to people and doing whatever I'm trying to do to like build community and build networks from the base. Um, but like you said, Jessica, the, what you have laid out as to what we've experienced in these last two years has not given me much. I wasn't particularly confident two years ago about the prospects for evolution. My confidence is pretty much, much lower two years on about the prospects for revolution, at least around me. Um, but I, I will say, and this was, you know, I'm, I talk to a counselor every two weeks. Um, and I was talking about the conversation I want to have with my family this summer, which is not just what, what's our plan. Um, but I want to talk about like, okay, what if this isn't the last time we're meeting? could we treat this like the last time we're meeting? Is that a crazy thing to do when all of us, my mom, my brother, my sister-in-law, my, my wife, all know what's happening right now and all see a similar dangerous world? Should we take for granted this meeting this we're having this summer? And I would say no. But my counselor was pointing, I don't know if my counselor sees it the same way, but he did point out, he basically said that that conversation that you might want to have, even if other people are thinking about plans, and I'm sort of thinking about like, like I said, getting right with God, with my family, and with people I love, is we all are going to die. Regardless of nuclear war or not, we are all here only for a limited time. And so it is important to cherish and to try to remind ourselves about how important the people in our lives are. So that's what I think about. And I think if I can start from there, that's not about resistance per se. In some ways it is, because it's about humanity. But that's not the important thing. The important thing is to say, these fuckers are willing to destroy the world in a nuclear war, whatever. It is still a gift to be alive. It is still a gift to be connected to people. And it's worth us reminding ourselves of that with the people we love. So. Yeah. 
and, and you know, just to echo that and while doing that, you know, for me, it's also about being honest, you know, like with, with where we stand about things, you know, and why. And I think that, you know, everyone in the show, you know, a lot of people that we've talked about, like everyone's an amazing human, you know, in their own way, you know, and like, and we don't all fully agree with every topic, you know, but we care and we, we, we care enough to try to do something about it. And I think that, you know, that's at least my hope that that can be that level of care, right, for our, our peers, our families, and, you know, um, in our convictions, maybe that will light some shit up. <laughs> I mean, you know, like maybe, and, and that's the only hope you have, like, you know, and know, to me, that's something I've had to learn myself, you know, through organizing and all this shit that I don't, it's not just up to me, it's not, it's not, I'm doing, I'm trying to do my part, and, and if I have to go this, you know, the, you know, and I, I jokingly say that in, with my friends and my brother, you know, it's like one of my two tombstones to say, I fucking tried. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and like, I don't know, it's not just up to me. I definitely know that. And, and like, that takes some burden off of me. You know, I'm just doing my part and try to not lose myself in it, I guess. Yeah, word. <laughs> <laughs> um. Well, anyway, I'm glad we talked about this. I'm grateful, Jessica, that I met you and know you. I definitely hope to meet you before the nuclear bombs go off in Oregon or in California. <laughs> um, and Kenny and I will have to probably do another walk through the woods, things like that. <laughs> Funny enough, I'm about to finish uh, the parable of the sword. Sword? Sword? Uh, you haven't read that book? You should read it. <laughs> it's about this dystopian world and people who are trying to create a new society. The shed is burning. People are, you know, this in close communities. And it's this young, like a black woman who pretends to be a man in order to survive. But she's the leader of this group. She's too young and she's leading older people. It's, you know, I think it's worth the read. Uh, and I don't I haven't reached the end, so I'll tell you if I still have hope in humanity after that. <laughs> right on. Um, all right, let's wrap up then. Let's see. All right. So thank you both. And hopefully we'll be back with Eduardo next week. Um, that does it for this week's episode. What's Left is a weekly political podcast channel challenging the mainstream left. We post information about our topics and our guests on the episode notes wherever you found this episode or on our blog, what-s-left.webnode.com. Uh, you can find past episodes of this podcast channel there and connect with us. Um, actually, it reminds me that I might have not done that in the beginning. Um, I remind folks, if you fancy anything you've heard here, please subscribe, rate, review, turn on your notifications to any of our nine platforms, uh, Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, BitChute, Odyssey, YouTube, Telegram, and Rumble. Um, you can find our blog and any of those links in the episode notes wherever you found this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback about something you've heard or something, or suggest something for us to cover, contact us through our blog um well anyway jessica kenny appreciate you both thank you so much for doing this today and um we'll all be back here next week <laughs>